0: Thank you, Matthew, for serving us and being thrown into the game like that. Thank you. Praise the Lord for that, and we're grateful. Well, take your Bibles a turn with me to John chapter 5. So we're back after spending a week. We at the doctrine of God's eternal punishment last week, very sobering sermon. I hope uh, you reflected on that throughout the week and being, give thanks for those of you who are redeemed from that, that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners like us. Plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. We're grateful for that. So, we're going to be looking at verses 30 to 39. So, let me read that. So, let us hear another word of the Lord as inspired by his spirit. John chapter 5, verse 30, beginning verse 30. Where Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. I'll read verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the word of the living God. May he add his blessing to this reading of it. Let's pray. This morning, Father, I pray the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, pleasing your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray that you would bind your word to our hearts, you would use it to transform us, that we would hate what you hate and love what you love, Lord, more. And be more like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that after we leave here today than we were when we arrived and throughout the week, Lord, your word would sustain us and keep us and grant us persevering grace. And God, we pray as we always do, if there be one here who does not know you, that today will be the day you plant a seed in their hearts to begin drawing them to yourself through your word, by your spirit, and they be saved and living for your glory all out. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege of preaching your word and hearing your word preached and taught. May you be honored and glorified in it. May your church be built in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as all of us know, we are Americans after all, that our justice system, our court system is based on witnesses. Here's what I mean by that. If you want to prove a criminal guilty or not guilty, you will need witnesses to prove their guilt or their innocence. And I saw this for many years, I was, a, as you know, a newspaper journalist, and for one year I was a court reporter, and so I would sit, my job all day was to sit, sit all day in court and listen to testimony. And I would always think, I wonder if they're guilty, and I would always joke, what do I think about this? Because we, the strength of the testimony, the strength of the witness determines almost everything in courts. So today's text kind of sets up like that. And Jesus is, it's, it's almost like a courtroom setting, so I want you to think that way this morning. As we look at these four witnesses, what I'm calling four witnesses. And they're four witnesses to the divinity of Christ, to, his, to the fact that he is the Messiah. So Jesus is on trial for the charge of blasphemy. He's accused by the Jews. He claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah. He claimed to be God, basically. And of course, the Jews, rightly so, take that very, very seriously. I mean, Jesus affirmed that right there. in, in The courtroom, as it were, here, Jesus said, yes, I am making that claim. He's very clear about that. Jesus does not stutter one bit, does he? And so we can imagine the scornful looks that adorn the faces of the priests or the other rulers sitting in judgment ready to convict him. And have him stoned to death. Can't you imagine that? This guy claims to be the Messiah. I mean, think how we would respond if this morning I got up here and instead of preaching the word, I said, I am Jesus. This is fulfilled in your hearing. You would have a different look on your face, I think. You'd think I've been celebrating Tennessee's victory myself too much or something like that, but you would not believe me and you would be very upset, I think, and you should be. So you kind of put yourself in their shoes. He claims to be the one spoken on the Old Testament, fulfillment of 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 the word of God, And Jesus, acting as his own attorney, he needs no attorney, right? He is Jesus, announces four witnesses to support his claims. Here in verse 31, Jesus acknowledges that Jewish legal legal procedures require independent witnesses. He says, if I I alone bear witness about myself, then my testimony, and I think a good translation is, is not deemed true. He's not saying, I'm not telling the truth. He's telling the truth. He is the truth. He's going to claim in John 14, that well-known verse, John 14, 6, he says, my testimony of my own, my own witness will not be deemed true because, of course, I believe I'm the Messiah, and you don't. So in other words, if Jesus makes claims about himself, it's not a valid testimony, and that's why it's translated the way it is. So there must be valid witnesses valid, that would de- agree with Jesus' testimony, that back up his claim, support his claim. I mean, anyone can claim to be divine. We've seen that, haven't we, throughout our history, recent history. I mean, false messiahs have have done so through the ages. Adolf Hitler claimed to be not just the the, Dieter Fuhrer, he claimed also to be the messiah of Germany and the Aryan race. He was the savior, he said. In his Reich, his kingdom would last a 1,000 years. It lasted 12 years because he's not the messiah. We know he's one of the most evil men in all of history. Think of David Koresh back in the 1990s of cult leader, claimed to be Jesus, claimed to be the Messiah. Charles Manson, probably the most notorious criminal in American history, perhaps, back in 1969, known for the murder of eight uh, eight people in Hollywood, very notorious criminal. He claimed to be Jesus Christ, and he had sort of a cult-like following among some of the hippie uh, generation of that time, and many, uh, for years, admired him because he claimed to be Jesus. Of course, we know what a what a, a reprobate and a wicked, wicked man he was and died just a few years ago. But he claimed to be Jesus. But Jesus, Jesus was different how he we went about proving his Messiahship. He said, there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And to the dismay of the prosecution, the Jews, Jesus produces a surprise witness <laughs> The witness of God, we're going to see that. He brings the Father, God, the sovereign creator of the universe. He's going to witness to my, my Godship, my Lordship. And this not just demands his acquittal, and it does, but also demands our faith. It demands something from us, that we believe in him. That if he proves himself to be the Messiah, that we trust in him alone. For the forgiveness of our sins, and all hope of eternal life. He is our Lord and our Savior. So it's not just the, the Jews who are, compelled to do something about Jesus it's us always 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 of course and the Christian faith of course is anything but blind you think about how courtrooms and I've been in a lot of them again as a journalist thankfully not as someone who's on trial but as a journalist and you know they always often feature this image of the blindfolded ladies saying justice is blind justice is just in other words but the Christian faith is not a blind leap in the dark right John Mellencamp sing about the blind faith of Jesus. Well, that's not the Christian faith. I'm not sure what he's singing about there, right? I think it rhymed with the next line in his song and it fit in with what he's singing about, live in a small town, but it's not the blind faith that Jesus had or we're called to have, right? I mean, I think the Christian faith will flat stand up in the marketplace of ideas. I'm not ashamed uh, to debate these things. I know Dr. Moeller, our president of the Southern, he often finds himself in debates and he's not ashamed because he makes his case, right? And Jesus makes his case here. So we don't need to stand back and cower in fear and say, you know, we just believe by faith and we don't have any evidence. There's plenty of evidence. And we're going to see some of that right here. Jesus using evidence. I think that gives us the warrant for even how we do uh, who do evangelism. So Jesus gives us these four witnesses. Now, he, he makes plain here in verse 30, he's come to do it on his own will, the Father's will, kind of repeating, striking another note that we've heard already that he, he's not doing his own program here, but the Father's will. And that's why he's uh, on trial by the Jews, as it were. Now, the background of, is very, very important. Deuteronomy 19.15 is the background as to why this is important at all that Jesus have to give an accounting for himself. Deuteronomy 19.15 and the Mosaic Law of Moses, um, the single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, Jesus is going to go them one better, right? Two or three witnesses shall a charge be established, and shall a person be acquitted. In other words, as well. So Jesus is making his defense, bringing forth four witnesses. Not just myself that bears witness about my Messiahship, he's saying, but there are others. And so we we uh, encounter witness number one, verse thirty-one, John the Baptist. He introduces what we've called the first Baptist, right? So of course, you know Baptist history. That's not necessarily true, but we think that sometimes. that we'll, we'll claim him. But the purpose of his ministry was to prepare the nation for the Messiah, the Jewish nation for the Messiah. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, raised up by God, called to prophesy, called to preach the gospel, the good news, of that those who walked in darkness had seen a great light, and the light was Christ. Verse 33, Jesus says, You sent John, sent to John, And he has borne witness to the truth. How? Well, back in chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, he said, why? He said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And remained upon him at his baptism. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So John comes to proclaim that he is the Son of God. He saw, he, he, he baptized him, he saw his baptism, saw the, the Spirit descending on him, and the voice from heaven saying, this is the Son of God. This is my Son, my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus cites the testimony of John the Baptist, not to make up any lack, because in verse 34 he says, not that, that the testimony I received is from man. So I don't have to be validated by man. He's going he's to progressively grow more... Testimonials that are more certain, witnesses that are more sure as he goes through these four. So he did so for the sake of his hearers. He does this because in verse 34 he says, I say these things, I'm bearing witness of myself and calling John the Baptist to bear witness for me so that you might be saved. John's faithful witness was so that they would be saved through him. Jesus came to sinners, came to save sinners by faith in himself. Jesus calls John a burning and shining lamp. I mean, John was not the truth. He was not the true light, but he lit the path as a witness ahead of Christ. This is what the world needs today. This is why, in part, we're being sanctified so that we can be a, a burning and shining lamp for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for a witness for him he needs witnesses who shine with the light of the truth and burn with the passion for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to be. We're called to be witnesses, just like John the Baptist. We're called to be Jehovah's true witnesses. No, the false witnesses go door to door on Saturdays, right? But we're called to be Jehovah's true witnesses. I think I preached a sermon a few months ago from John calling uh, with that title. But we're called to be Jehovah's true witnesses. We need more people like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Reformation Month, its a good time to talk about them. They were burned at the stake on October 16th, 1555. What's today's date? October 16th, right? Am I right about that? I think I'm right about that. 467 years ago today, so we're celebrating this anniversary today. They were burned at the stake for preaching the truth of Jesus Christ in London. Latimer when he's tied to the stake and set to flames, refusing to abandon the gospel. He turned to Ridley and called out very famously, "Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle that, by God's grace, in England as I trust, shall never be put out." Are we ready to witness for Jesus like that? And we live in America, and it's we've been at ease in Zion for a long, long time. I'm not sure in the. Days and months and years ahead till Jesus comes back. Well, it's going to be that easy here in our country. and I really think that might be good for us. Not that we all have a, a martyr complex or want to be burned at the stake, but for us to be challenged and say, that these men, they believe the gospel. All their hearts, they laid down their lives for it. In the same way, we must be prepared to serve as mighty witnesses for Christ. Ready to lay down our very lives as necessary to bear witness to him, to be marturo, to be witnesses. John the Baptist did this, and what happened to him? What happened to the end? You get a television show, and write a popular blog, and you get a get a uh, podcast. No, he was beheaded, right? For the claims of the gospel, he was a burning and shining light. And think about a candle. A candle not only burns, but is consumed for the purpose of what? Putting forth light. We use them to bring good odors in rooms now. We do that now. They smell good, right? But there was a time when they brought light and even warmth, right? Heat, Light and heat. That's what we're, we're called to be. John the Baptist was a burning and, and shining light. And the Jews reveled in John for a while, Jesus said. But as one commentator put it, they abandoned him when things become awkward the Jews were like so many people in church today. They're willing to say, you know, I'll stay as long as I get something out of it. I can't tell you the number of times in the, over the years as a pastor, and Doug can bear witness to this too. He's been a pastor for a long time that you've heard. I'm just not getting anything out of the church anymore. They stay for a while, right? They love the youth ministry, man. It's good for a while. Love the preaching for a while. Love the music for a while. But then, it just, they're there for that reason, and that reason, they kind of just, eh, I'm not getting a lot out of this anymore, we'll go to, you know, this church over here, they've got this, and pretty soon they probably say to that pastor or those pastors, you know, I'm not getting a lot out of this, and you know, on and on. it goes, we're consumers in America, so it's easy for us to do this, and there are good, uh, by God's grace, good churches all over our country, we're thankful for that. But that's how fickle we are and how fickle we're like, like the Jews. We can't look at them and go, boy, I wouldn't be that way if I'd have been there. I would have protected Jesus. No, we wouldn't. We would have turned him over to the authorities just like they did. I mean, we want to enjoy church. But when the enjoyment, run, enjoyment runs out, we run out with it. Verse 34, Jesus made it plain. He said these things that they may be saved. That's what we're here for, right? That we'll be saved and we'll be, we are saved and we're being saved. I'd like to remind us of that, that yes, we're as saved as we'll ever be, but there's also a sense in which we are being saved. That's what sanctification is about. That's why Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father praying for us right now this morning so that we will continue to be saved. do if you stop praying for me? I put myself in the bottom of hell in about five seconds i find some idol to worship. You know, we wrestle with that anyway, don't we? But he's praying for us so that we are being saved. And church, the church, is, uh, uh, the church is one of those important means of grace, isn't it? Involvement in the church, whether we're massive or small, whatever we are, faithful church. That's why we, we talk about church attendance, We're not trying to make people feel guilty, just that, hey, this is important. And, you know, I've always la- jokingly told y'all, but really, I mean this, make church your excuse for missing other things. Because we're here so that you may be saved Sunday after Sunday for the salvation of your souls. We minister not to offer a spiritual Disney world of some kind, but to preach and teach and pray and sing for the salvation of your souls and for our own souls. It's a means of grace for me too. Preaching is a means of grace for, for me saving my own soul, the sanctification of my own soul. So John the Baptist was that kind of witness and they turned against, they, they will turn, they will eventually turn against him when they get, don't enjoy him anymore. He starts preaching, repent. And believe in Christ and so there's one witness second witness to the son of God is his miracles verse 36 where Jesus Jesus says but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John okay so there John was great but here's a better one for the works that the father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me so he's speaking the miracles here oh John the Baptist man, he was great all right but there's something greater the miracles. Ironically, it was the miracles that led to these accusations against Jesus. And he's saying the miracles actually bear witness to my authenticity. They authenticate me. And they bear witness against you for judgment. Dr. Muller in chapel this week talking about how much irony there is in the Gospel of John. It's true. It's full of irony. This is another one of those ironies. And you'll see it all through there. And really it's all through the Bible, isn't it? I mean, so far, as far as recorded miracles go, there may have been more, we don't know. But as far as recorded miracles go, Jesus turned the water into wine. Boy, that was really good. He's healed a government official's son. Man, that was even better. He's healed a paralyzed man. Wow, that's impressive. Only God can do that, right? It gets him in trouble. I mean, only God can perform these type of miracles. So it proves what Jesus is debating with the Jews. He is claiming to be God. Make no mistake about it. And the main t- purpose of these miracles, and I think this gets lost sometimes in our, our, our studying of the Bible, uh, was to serve as signs of His divine power and His glory. That's the main purpose of the miracles. Because think about Lazarus. It's great that Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? But what's going to happen to Lazarus eventually? Jesus didn't come back in his, during his era, right? So He's going to die. And that was great insofar as it goes, but man, I'd rather be taken into hell be Enoch. I'd rather be taken into heaven without dying. Or if I have to choose one, I'll raise you from the dead, Jeff, or I'll take you into heaven. Man, put me on that magic carpet ride or the, the chariot all the way into heaven, right? <laughs> put me on that. Don't have to die. Well, Lazarus would die again. So, but they pointed to him, their signs, the authenticating that he is the son of God. I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in the miracle, and they are awesome, we forget their signs. I mean, the book of Hebrews speaks of this. I mean, John I mean, Hebrews 2, 4, God also bore witness to the gospel by signs and wonders and various miracles. So they're confirming signs that Jesus is God and also that he was sent by the Father to do these very things and to save us from our sins. And the Pharisees, well, they didn't even bother to investigate the miracles, did they? Mm-mm. They merely got angry because he'd healed on the Sabbath. Hey, man, you did this you did on the Sabbath. You can't do that. You can't do that. And Jesus said, well, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Well, that really got them. I made the Sabbath. I made you. It's like, you know, Jesus in elementary school, can you just imagine, this is a sanctified imagination, but you know, someone says, yeah, my dad's tougher than your dad. I say, yeah, well, my dad made your dad, right? I mean, Jesus, you're not going to trump Jesus. <laughs> my dad made your dad do better than that, and he's telling the truth. Ugh. Of course, Jesus wouldn't use it in such a crass and borderline sinful way like I would. That's why he's the Messiah, and we're not, right? I would really abuse that power, and, uh, and so uh, that's why I'm not the Messiah, they didn't investigate. They, they, just, they just said, no, we're picking it apart. You did it on the Sabbath. I mean, even after he raised Lazarus from the dead, they plotted to kill the Lord. He raised Lazarus, we're going to kill him. They probably want to kill Lazarus too. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So they're leaving the Jews and going after Jesus or jealousy here. So we want to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus, we've got to stamp all this out right now before it spreads. Well, it spread. And the truth is, little has changed, right? Because how many liberal scholars seek to disprove Jesus' miracles, and many of them question the Bible's accounts of the miracles. They, they, they don't believe the miraculous at all, the, uh, the, the, the supernatural parts of the faith, they deny you have the, the Jesus seminar, you know, they've got their little black beads and they, what they think Jesus said, they drop in the you know, black bead, he said it, red, he didn't say it. Oh, I think there's maybe a green may, or a yellow, maybe he said it, we're not really sure. I mean, who are they? How do they know? They don't know, right? They say, we have this Bible, it's about this thick, you know, we got a really small Bible. There's not much that they think Jesus said. So they're really just falling into the sins of the Jews, right? It's the same thing. Nothing's changed. The human heart hasn't ever really changed. I mean, the Gospels are written under the, kind of super, under the supervision of the kind of eyewitnesses that honest courts are obliged to accept. Jesus' miracles aren't easily explained as exaggerations. I mean, the Gospels were written during the lives of many of the eyewitnesses and they would have been in a position, eyewitnesses, they would have been in a position to expose Jesus as a fraud and a charlatan. He'd come out and said, this is, he didn't do that, he didn't raise the dead, I was never dead to begin with. Now, that never happens, does it? I mean, our legal system would be obligated to accept Jesus' testimony as true and say he's not guilty like that, given our legal system in, in this country. The liberal scholars who deny the miracles of Jesus saw a strong anti-Christ, anti-Christian bias, and I think they're even a type of anti-Christ as we look at 1 John and other places. I think here at Lee Strobel, some of you know that name. Lee Strobel was a longtime journalist, wrote for the Chicago Tribune, covered politics for them and the news, other big news pa- papers, but he was a rabid atheist. It was when he was always set out to disprove the miracles of Christ and to disprove the authenticity of the Christian faith. But the more he investigated, even 2,000 years removed from the miracles and the writing of the gospels, The more he became convinced of their authenticity. The more he became convinced, this is right. And of course, the Spirit of God's at work in him. He's reading the Bible, right? He's reading the Word of God, which is the the primary source. And before long, he becomes a Christian. He embraces the whole thing. As one of my friends put, he swallows it, feathers and all. The Holy Spirit, all, all of it, all of it, right? Becomes a Christian, a follower of Christ, and now is one of the greatest apologists the last 20, 25 years that the evangelical church knows. Writes books that have been immensely helpful to me and other people in sharing the gospel. Lee Strobel. I think also of, similarly of Simon Greenleaf, the founder of, of Harvard Law School. Of course, we know what's happened to Harvard, right? No longer do they believe the, the Christian faith founded on it, but no longer subscribe to it at, by any means. He wrote a treatise on the, the law of evidence that's used, used in our court system today. And he also set out to, to uh, disprove Christianity by applying his own rules of evidence to the four Gospels. And what happened? Well, like Lee Strobel, he wound up not refuting the faith but be embracing it. God got a hold of Simon Greenleaf, accepted the claims of Christ and follows, followed him. He was particularly moved by the way the disciples were persuaded of Christ's resurrection and were willing to die for it. He said, you might. A person would never die for a lie, surely. They die for the truth. And so the evidence that the Jews rejected, many, many by reading the scripture believed because of that today. It's evidence, isn't it? So witness number two was the miracle. Third witness, God the Father. See, this gets better. Right? And more important, we're headed toward the star witness. Verses 37 and 38. Jesus, I think, is referring here to the occasions when God's voice audibly hailed him as a beloved son. Think about it. And the Father himself who sent me has testified to me. His voice, he said, you have never heard. His form you have never seen. God spoke audibly, as I said earlier, Jesus' baptism. When in Matthew 3, 17, it said, a voice... From heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Man, wouldn't you like to hear that? They've never heard it. Jesus heard it. John heard it. And God the Father endorsed Jesus, uh, the Son, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? Matthew 17, 5. He was with three disciples, including John, who wrote this, this gospel, of course. Jesus was transfigured into glory. Said a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice, excuse me, from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, hear his word. Listen to him. The Father said it. Listen to his word. Suggestive. We'll come back to that in a minute. Because here's the point God himself, God the Father, gave direct evidence, direct validation about Jesus as his divine Son and testified. To him in the whole witness of scripture. All of it. So this is a greater witness than John the Baptist or the miracles and demands acceptance as the son of God, as Messiah. Throughout the Bible, the mark of God's true servants is that they hear the voice of God. They see his visible form. This is the Bible. They have his word abiding in them. And we see this in Noah and Abraham and Moses and Samuel. We see this in Elijah's ministry on Mount Sinai, all of Israel saw a visible display of God on, on the mountain. And they said, we, we can't hear this anymore. Moses, you need to intercede for us because we don't want to hear from God anymore. It almost killed them. I'm always amused at the number of teachers, usually on television, usually preaching a health and wealth gospel, who have encountered God face to face and lived to tell about it. When Israel said, we can't hear anymore. <laughs> we can't hear anymore. We don't want to see any more of this. I think we'd be vaporized if we truly encountered God. That's how we need a mediator, right? But I digress. So, some sim- very similar things happen in the New Testament. And the fact that Jesus is accused and often also heard God's voice, yet they rejected him. This shows they were not God's people. See, maybe the doctrine of election come in here, right? They hear the gospel and they say, no thanks. We don't believe he's the Messiah. He's lying. He's a liar and lunatic, but he's not Lord. They do not humble themselves and believe what God's Word said is true, verse 38. But you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe in Him whom He has sent. You've got to believe in Him whom He has sent. That's me. That's Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, right? And you don't have the Word of God abiding in you. And This happens to us today more subtly, I think. Every time we hear sermons, every time we read the Bible or even go to, attend seminary, every time we go to church, go to seminary... But we have no real relationship with God. I mean, our, Sadly, you know, our churches are full of people. But they have no relationship with God. They don't walk with Him day by day by day by day by day. There's just no real fruit in their lives. But they love to hear sermons. And sadly, I, I, I've met some in seminary. And you have probably too, who I, I, I don't know. You wonder, you know, I don't know. I think it was one of you, maybe Matthew, maybe we all had a, a roommate who just wondered was from good evidence, probably not a believer, not even close. Wow. So we're just heaping judgment on ourselves by hearing sermons and hearing the truth of God. We must not do that ourselves. It also shows that we have a grand opportunity here. If we believe the Bible, believe it's teaching about Jesus Christ... Believe it is God's chosen means of enlightenment to the truth, unto salvation and transformation, and we must believe in ourselves. And then we unleash it on the unbelievers around us. It, it's enough. It's all we need. Right? We don't need a whole lot. See the Word faithfully proclaimed, unleashed, and allow it to do its work through the power of the Spirit of God. I mean, God will confirm his word and the truthfulness of the gospel. God's word bears witness to his people. That's how we know there's people. They love, they believe his word. It's not up to us to save them, is it? And we can have utter confidence that the word of God is mighty to save and it is enough because God bears witness with his son through the word that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only road to heaven. He bears witness. God does it. God bears witness in their hearts. That's how you came to faith in Christ. God worked in your heart, said this word is true, and it's true for you, and you believe it. The Father did that through the Holy Spirit, right? And the witness is growing importance. So witness number three, God the Father. They grow in importance like a murder trial. You always, uh, in all the trials I covered, I covered some, a couple of spectacular trials. They always say the of witness for, for, for near last. I remember in and I didn't, this was 1969, but i read a lot about it. When Charles Manson was on trial, he looked like he might get off. There's a lot of really strains. I mean, all, all the witnesses have been on drugs. They've been doped up. And they saved the last witness for near the last, Linda Kasabian, who'd been there when the murders went down. She didn't pull the trigger. She had. She didn't do it, but she saw it. And could be a, a, it was a clean eyewitness and they saved her and she, he went to prison for the rest of his life as did all of his followers, most of his followers because of her being the star witness. And it was clear. That's what's happening here. Star witness comes last. That's what Jesus I think is doing here. Nothing accidental in scripture is the way the spirit inspired it, right? I don't believe that. With his case already well developed, he brings the star witness. Here it is, God's testimony through his word. Not just a portion of the Word, it's all of it. Of course, this would be what? Romans? No. (laughs) This would be the Old Testament, right? So the Old Testament enough to save? Absolutely, there's no no question. Witness number four, the Scriptures. Let's read verse 39. I'll read 40 with it. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And, And you're right, thinking that. It is they that bear witness about me. And of course, in the hard heartedness, verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. The Old Testament leads to eternal life. I love the Gideons. I have two uncles who were Gideons. You know, who knows what Gideons are? Who had Gideon Sunday growing up in church? Some of you are looking at the Gideons. Well, ask your parents if you went to church. They're they a ministry that is very popular in the Deep South. Uh, and nationwide, they give out the Bible. And I appreciate, love their ministry. Sometimes they give, they give the New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs, and the Old Testament's gone. It's kind of a Marcionite approach to the Bible. I, I appreciate that, but I think we need the whole Bible. You could give, I think you could give them the Old Testament, you know, and maybe John. <laughs> you could take a different approach, and, and it would be enough, right? Because we, we see salvation. Uh, Jesus proclaimed salvation through the Old Testament, right there. So why is the Bible the star witness? You would think God the Father is the star witness, right? Why in the world is this book, why are you calling that the star witness, Jeff? Well, because the religious leaders themselves. Now, he's very logical here. The religious leaders themselves, Jesus' accusers, they acknowledge Scripture as their highest authority. saying, okay, on your terms, this speaks about me. I'm meeting you on your ground. And we'll see And. Here and in many places, the Bible, God uses His word to exert saving power. And the Jews, they were the leading theologians of the day, by the way. They missed its message. They missed the message. They read it, they studied it, they taught it, they proclaimed it, and they missed out on Jesus. Isn't that tragic? It'd be tragic for you to hear sermons here or your Church maybe you grew up in or uh, you you hear sermon after sermon or on the internet or wherever you listen to sermons and then just go away and you never really get it. That's really what happened here. It missed its message. Verse 39, such a hard-hitting verse. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And of course, they're right. But say that bear witness to me. And that you refuse to come to me, that you might have life. You refuse to bow to this most powerful of witnesses, that you might have life. You missed it. Because the Old Testament leads to eternal life. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 15, he says, You, however, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. You didn't have Romans. Right, and You didn't have John, <laughs> you had the Old Testament, the sacred writings, you become acquainted with them, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures you have, the sacred writings, sacred scripture is able to make you wise to salvation, you got the Old Testament, testify to me, and it is enough. It's the final and most powerful witness to the deity of Christ. I think specifically here Jesus is talking about Moses, the law of God, because he's going to say this later on in the chapter. Verse 46, he said, if you believe Moses, they love Moses. We follow Moses, not you. He said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote of Jesus. He say, well, I thought he wrote the Ten Commandments. I thought he wrote all those laws in Deuteronomy. They're really strange about shellfish and things like that. He wrote those too. He was a type of Christ. But he wrote about Jesus because at the end of the day, the law of God was about Christ. Because the law couldn't save them, it did what? It drove them to Christ. We preached on that here uh, a few years ago. And I preached n- n- numerous times on the law, how the law drives us to the gospel. Moses wrote of Jesus. This is reminiscent of, of Luke 24. We're going to meditate on a couple of verses in, uh, during the Lord's Supper on uh, Luke 24. When Jesus appeared after his resurrection to two men on the road to Emmaus. And they said, have you heard about this man here? We thought he was going to be the Savior coming. He got himself killed. And Jesus said, you're so slow to believe. And they explained to them in all the Bible, Old Testament, about himself. This is how we read our Bibles. This tells us right here, the, 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 the word of God is inspired and so is the hermeneutic. The method of interpretation is also inspired, in other words. Not just we have the Bible, but also how we're to understand the Bible. We've taught on this lots here at Christ Fellowship. Not just me, but many of of you have preached and and taught on Sunday night and other times. I've taught about this. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. So the ultimate issue is belief in Christ. That's what the Bible should do. No other approach to God's Word can do helpless sinners good. It's the approach of all the Old Testament to the Old Testament, all the New Testament writers. See this in John 5, 7, or Matthew 5, 17, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the law being fulfilled in him, self. Here in John 5, and later in John 8. 2 Timothy 3, 14, 15. And above, we just quoted 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. He said, They prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. The prophets, the Old Testament prophesied, prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. It's coming to you. Grace not law. You're not saved by keeping the law, you're saved by grace, and they prophesied about it. All those prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and the minor prophets, Micah, Jonah, Daniel, all those, the the major prophets and minor prophets, they all talk about me, Jesus said. And they're fulfilled in him. Think of the book of Hebrews, we preached through that here just a couple years ago. An entire book in the New Testament, an entire letter, a sermon Arguing that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, that He is the greater high priest, the greater sacrifice, the greater temple, the greater, greater covenant, the greater surety for sinners, the only surety for sinners. It's all about Him. Gospel is the point. Creation, fall, redemption. Creation, first two chapters of the Bible, fall, chapter three, part of it, till verse 315, the rest of it, redemption, and then new creation, of course, in Revelation, but redemption, that's what it's about. But we typically don't read the Bible that way, do we? We read it many other ways. We read it as a man-centered document. Maybe as legalism. The Bible is a bunch of do's and don'ts, a bunch of laws. and don't ever get past that and say, man, I can't do that. And you're right. Without grace, we can't do that. It drives us to grace, right? We read it with end times, what I call end times enthusiasts. I grew up with this approach where I got sermons on the rapture, the secret rapture almost every Sunday. It's all about the rapture. It's like taking the telescope and look at the wrong end <laughs> look at the fat end and look at it, it just puts it further away that's what it did it, it's not the way to read the bible the lens is christ our confession of faith of southern baptist says that and it's right and we read it as moral example jesus is an example to be followed he is but we can only do that by the spirit after we're saved right but we read it as moral example all the all the people in the bible they're just moral examples jesus he's a moral example too of how we ought to live our lives We say, well, it's what it means to me. That's kind of a reader response theory. This verse means to me. You've probably heard that. I've heard that in church. Or life verse. Everything's life verse with no context at all. Just one verse shorn from its context. And that's my life verse. And that's it. Build my whole life on that without any context. And I think most popular today is kind of a therapeutic approach. The Bible is a self help manual. You know, I think we kind of we sometimes that it had tabs on the outside, like anxiety and fear and like money and things like that. You know, we just, okay, well, I'll read the Bible because it's that way. And all that's in there, but that's not what the Bible, it's not a self-help document, a self-help manual. Because well, we tend to read ourselves into the narrative in such a way that David and Goliath, well, that becomes about slaying the giants in your life. And of course, God does give you the, that's right, in a, in a sense, that's not what that's about we read ourselves into the narrative that way. How to face the giants in your life. My favorite, five smooth stones to wealth and prosperity from David and Goliath. Now that took some creativity. I give them an A for creativity, right? How you got to your bank account being filled from David killing the giant. Or five indisputable ways to grow your church. I heard that preached at a serious conference one time from this text. Church growth in David and Goliath. Your church will be as big as Goliath, I guess that was the, the, the theme, I don't know. <laughs> that's the least one I think I took home from it, but that's how we read it. And Noah's Ark, you know, we've the, you know, we have our children, we have the Noah's Ark on the nursery and our, on the walls, you know, and Lisa always gets on to me, so I go into people's nursery and say, oh, you've got a picture of God's wrath on your wall, how about that? You're going to learn about God's judgment right off the bat, that's beautiful. Of course we know, I know, it's theological humor, theology, theology guy humor, I, I know that. But God intentionally gave us a narrative. That's what we're reading now and theologically annotated that narrative. That is the way the Bible is meant to be. And once you get the glorious drama of redemption that has progressively unfolded from Genesis to Revelation, progressively it's like a flower just opens up more and more. You get more light, more and more and more. You realize that every passage of Scripture reveals Christ and every passage reveals the plan of a sovereign God to bring about redemption through His Messiah. It all hinges right here, doesn't it? And every passage in some way reveals the grave reality of the human condition. Something I teach my students to look for in preaching is the fallen condition focus from Brian Chappell. what's, What's this tell us about our fallenness, this text? It tells us a lot. That's our place in the Bible. Because we live east of Eden. The human heart is utterly wicked about, uh, above all else. That's what the Bible says about us. And a need of righteousness that is outside itself. And that's why Jesus came. And that's what we need. Every passage reveals that the problem is inside of us. And that the solution is entirely 100% outside of us. Our problem's not the family we grew up in, our most fundamental problem. It's not, that may be a problem, but it's not your most fundamental problem. Or the fact that I didn't, was wealthy growing up, or I was too wealthy growing up, or I lived in the South, or I didn't live in the South, or I lived some, you know, or my teachers are mean to me, or my, no, 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 that's not your most fundamental problem. Your most fundamental problem is you're separated from the Holy God, and one day you will stand before Him and give an account, and what then will you say about your righteousness? That's your problem. God and the Bible screams that to us. Every passage reveals the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, all of Scripture tells us that Christ came to rescue us for the glory of God, and of the Father. It's about the Gospel. So we must read it this way. I mean, he is the ultimate interpreter of Scripture. And I think to read the Old Testament, any other way is to fail to read it in a Christian manner. There are lots of non-Christian sermons preached in Christian churches and sometime in the past, I may have been guilty of that. I hope I'm not guilty of that now. So here we go. There you have it. Jesus brings four, I think, very compelling, highly compelling witnesses that he is, in fact, God. John the Baptist, the miracles, God the Father, and finally, the sorrow witness, the Word of God. And friends, that does not make us bibliologists. We've been accused of that. No, no, because it reveals to us the Son, Right? That's why I mean, Second Peter. I love this in Second Peter, one Second Peter talks about them being, uh, being with Jesus in the Transfiguration. He says, "We were there, but we've got something more sure—the Word of God." He calls that more. We saw that, we heard that, but that's not our experience. Is not the most certain thing. What's more sure is the Word of God. That's we can flat count on it because God wrote it down and gave it to us. So, are you believing in Him this morning? When you read the Bible, do you read it in light of Jesus Christ? Are you a witness to Christ, to those around you? Are you are, are you convincing others? Is your life transformed? And is your life, your godly life, a witness to those who are around you? They say, you know, there's something different about that chap, But that chapette. Something different. Are you ready to give an account for the hope you have that lies in you? Let's think on these things as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Here, momentarily, as we think about that you can go ahead and guys can go ahead and get ready to, to pass out the elements I want to pray and then we'll we'll uh, just go right into it let's pray father we thank you for your son and we praise you for the the four witnesses strong witnesses lord we are convinced that you are the son of god and that we proclaim you and that is our primary uh, focus to believe you and to proclaim you. And God, give us grace to be faithful in that. And I pray that we'd be edified and strengthened as we see your gospel proclaimed here in these elements. In the, the broken bread, we'll see your broken body. In the cup, the, the crushed grape, we see your body crushed, your blood poured out for us. We'd see that fountain filled with blood. The sinners plunge beneath that flood like us. Sinners like us lose all their guilty stains. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Pray now you nourish us and strengthen us afresh with your word. And in this meal, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.